Hey everybody, we are super pleased to announce our new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. The goal? Power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. And the best part? Marvel Strike Force just reached its six-year anniversary, which means free stuff when you sign up via our unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. Just complete each event, and you'll receive special awards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and every week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. If we have received a unique promo code for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code, it is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 71. This week, our feature is how to teach a game. We'll also be talking about Richard Lanius's two Kickstarters and Spiel des Jahres and Smash Up, It's All Your Fault. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Daniel. And unfortunately, a tragic Rondell accident ruined the podcast that I recorded with Drew. So I apologize to Drew and everybody out there who's been waiting for Drew to come back. We actually recorded a whole episode, but some crazy technical time warp glitch ruined that episode but thankfully daniel was able to jump back in and we have an episode for you this week yep yay <laughs> yeah <laughs> Woo! so playing the part of drew will be daniel this week <laughs> uh, rondell's uh risk uh old games uh oh let's get superheroes <laughs> uh what else what else is there Smash ups or mash ups? Mash ups, mash ups, Lord of the Rings. Lord of the, no Lord of the Rings. <laughs> gospel, gospel. Very, very tall guy, something. tall guy. Tall, ski, tall guy, beard. Stand beard. on table. Yeah, yeah okay, yeah. we got this. I got this. <laughs> I got Drew. I can, I, can, I can do this. I can channel the love of Risk and the hatred of most of the fun games out there because they happen to have superheroes in them, but okay. <laughs> and Lord of the Rings. And Lord of the Rings. For some reason. Uh, the Gospel of Lord of the Rings. 
Well, we're also talking a little bit about solo gaming. So Anthony wanted to be sure that he put all his time and attention to solo gaming, so much so that he'll only be here for our solo gaming segment. So listen a little bit later for that segment, and Anthony will jump in, and then mysteriously jump back out again. Woo! Magic. Magic. All right, so... We also wanted to give you a general announcement about our episode 74. Now, we've been talking about this for the last couple of episodes. It's our listener feedback episode. Now, if you remember back, we talked about how Daniel was generous enough to volunteer Anthony to be available 24-7 at our Twitter account. So be sure to jump on our Board Gamers Anonymous Twitter account, our Facebook account, our guild on Board Game Geek, post a message somewhere to us through a magical portal, through a space-time vortex. Whatever you need to do, post some comments, give us five stars on iTunes, post a review on Stitcher, find some old people across the street and just ask them please to get some words out to us because we really want to include you on that episode 74. Any questions, issues, thoughts, ideas, what your favorite game is. We really want to hear back from you. Anthony's always posting questions on our Facebook account and our Twitter account. So answer them, get to us, and on episode 74, it's all about you. Yeah, we really do want to hear from you through Anthony. Uh, and I'm going to emphasize the through Anthony. I've I've had a few people, you know, stopping me on the street or standing out in my apartment, throwing bricks, you know, rocks at the glass. And, you know, it's flattering and all, but... Really, you have to go through the proper channels if you want to get time with people as important as we are. That's true. It's not like we sit at home alone in our apartments and cry into <laughs> ice cream or anything. That would be ridiculous. How dare you think that? <sighs> Anthony's really missing you guys, so please hit it, Anthony up early, often, nights, weekends, birthday parties. It doesn't matter. Just, just hit him up. Hit him all over the place. I mean, he is solo gaming after all, so he could use some people. He could. He could. All right, so with that said, let's get on to our news. Shout it from the tabletops. <laughs> Sir, you're going to need to get down. For our there. news this week, we wanted to talk about some of the awards that have been wrapping up. In particular, an interesting contest that we've been talking about the last several weeks Smash Up, It's All Your Fault. Now, we talked about the massive nominees the 32, the 16, the 8. Well, now. Finally, we have the four winners. Yes, we do. Sharks, superheroes, Greek myth, and dragons. Okay. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little bit of synchrony there, right? So superheroes are kind of the modern version of characters from Greek myth. True. You know, sharks and dragons are both the sort of the dangerous <laughs> monsters of the deep, right? Ah, like, I see what you did there. Yeah, I think that, you know, maybe that's indicating some sort of cultural zeitgeist. You know? Ah, I see. Or okay. maybe I'm just totally full of it. <laughs> Why can't both be true? Both probably are. <laughs> well, you know that literally every shark card is going to be a Sharknado card. Sharknado. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much determined. That that's got to be the big card, right? It has yeah. to be. It's got to be the big powerful card. Somehow... You're going to throw the, as the action is going to be like, take all the sharks from all the bases and put it on one base and create a Sharknado? Yeah, I wonder, actually, I was just thinking, is it going to be a minion or an action, right? Is it going to be a minion card that's like a really big bunch of sharks in a tornado? 
Or is it going to be an action card that clumps your sharks together and like randomly throws them or something? <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I actually might might want to actually play with that faction. The superhero faction might be interesting, but I don't know how legally distinct they're actually going to go with that. Yeah, I mean, they're going to have to be pretty generic, right? Or else they sure. risk significant legal problems. But that shouldn't be an issue, right? There's lots of sort of generic riffs on the superhero. Yeah, and I mean, they have they have so many factions out already. Mm-hmm. And I think they've skated around all those problems. I think they should be okay. But I, I got to believe there's going to be some sort of quasi-Avenger group and some quasi-Clark Kent in a... I don't know, phone booth switching clothes or something like that. That would be another interesting action. Yes. Like the transforming one. That's a good question, though. Are they going to go Marvel superheroes or are they going to go DC superheroes? Okay. Who's going to be their source of inspiration there? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Are we going to get Justice League or Avengers? Hmm. hmm. <laughs> well, there's definitely got to be a Batman card, right? There has to be. It has yeah. to be a Batman card. I think Batman, just based upon all the memes that have been out there, there's got to be a Batman card, so... Now, Greek myth should be pretty cool. A yeah. Lot, a lot of different gods, you know. The Pantheon's pretty full. A lot of different gods, a lot of different heroes and monsters. There's a lot of ways they could go with, you know, the most powerful card. Is it going to be Hercules? Is it going to be Zeus? Is it going to be sure one of the, uh, the elder gods, right? And I, I wonder, too, are they going to go modern, like kind of movie myths? Or are they going to go really classic stuff? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Right? Are they gonna? I feel like they're probably gonna do modern takes on Greek myths, okay? Because they're gonna want to resonate with their base more, and their base is not entirely composed of classicists. Yeah, though they would really enjoy it. I if would you really spelled enjoy it, that. Yeah, right? if it were Heracles, like it's supposed to be, as opposed to Hercules, they'd be really excited about that. <laughs> and then no one else would know who that card was supposed to be. It's true. Uh, so you can't be too too exact there. So that might just be a faction just full of really strong minions. Maybe, right? That could yeah. be an interesting way to go about it, right? There's lots of really tough just characters. Like, yeah, just like superheroes and Greek myth, as you were saying, just like these big, powerful beings. Maybe it's all about the minions, whereas sharks and maybe dragons, it's yeah. all about the actions. Uh, you never know. I mean, sharks and dragons are also pretty scary things, it's true, right? true, but they don't have like... The big individual ones. I mean, like, you could have Tiamat, you could have some of the big dragons from D&D, but typically, maybe it's going to be, like, Fire Breath, Ice Breath, Acid Breath, Lightning, you know. Yeah, it depends on what source they're going for with the dragons. This is something I've I've been wondering. Are they going to include East Asian modern models of dragons? Very cool. Are they going to look at, say, like, Norse dragons? Arguably, Yorgamund, the world serpent, might qualify as a dragon, in which case that is definitely the big card, because that thing wraps around the earth three times or something like that. Uh, So there's a lot of interesting ways they could go there. Hopefully they move beyond just the D&D cut-and-paste chromatic dragon model. I guarantee you, no matter what happens, someone's going to complain that there are sun dragon cards in there that are not technically dragons. Well, you know, <laughs> if they want to get into uh, cryptozoological cladistics, right, and start dividing up the non-existent creatures into non-existent species, I'd love to see their scholarly work on why they should be taxonomized in such a way. You don't know. Maybe they share a common ancestor, right? There are glass lizards or lizards that don't have legs. That's true. Right? And they're lizards, not snakes. So maybe the legless dragon is just the same sort of thing. 
Okay. Boom. <laughs> Served before you even ordered. <laughs> Imaginary rhetorical, very fussy listener who probably doesn't listen to our podcast because they would have given up on us like months ago. So was that like a dragon burn then? Oh! <laughs> you can't see it, but I'm doing the like the obnoxious thing with my hand. The oh thing. Yeah, you know. I, what I'm I think they about. felt that. They felt it. Yeah, they felt the burn, so they knew that the hand was there. They felt the obnoxiousness coming through the microphone. I feel like you should drop the mic, but it's our <laughs> only mic, so I don't want to drop my mic. It's expensive. <laughs> then I we'll like re- my mic. Then we'll really need the Patreon account. <laughs> <laughs> Can you back us? Because seriously, we dropped the mic because it was such a cool moment, but now we can't pick it up because it's all in pieces. I am regretting my flair for the dramatic. <laughs> It was worth it, man. It was worth it. Now, on to the final big awards that everyone's been waiting for, the Spiel des Jahres. Each and every year, we talk about all the different awards, and, you know, the the Origins Awards are kind of humorous, because that's what they were going with, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay, they were going with humor. That must have been doing it. (laughs) The Dice Tower Awards are, are really smart, because they bring the best of board gaming, publishers, podcasters video casters and they pulled together an excellent list and then Spielis Yaris is the kind of I guess would be the motherland or the fatherland <laughs> it is the uh, the origin point right for a lot of modern gaming right? German style games and the push of popularizing board games out of Germany is largely to credit with the resurrection of the board gaming industry from what appeared to be extinction Absolutely. So now the Spielish Yaris is the one that really gets the most attention. And this year, there are three games that have been nominated. The first up is actually called The Game. Now, this one really isn't well known in the U.S. and it hasn't had the distribution here yet. But The Game is really kind of two games. The first part of the game is actually a solo game. It's a deck of cards. You'll set out two cards that have a one and then an arrow going up and you'll have two cards that have a hundred and an arrow going down and the object of the game is to get rid of as many cards as possible into these four different deck areas so you get a hand of eight cards you have to play two you can play more and so let's say you get a five now obviously you're going to play the five on a one that's ascending So, okay, but now you left out the two, three, and four. That's kind of a bit of a problem. But now you still have the other one. Now, this is a pretty simple game because you're just placing cards. But the one little strategy, tactic, kind of interesting flair to the game is if, let's say, for example, you had a 27 out there. But you pull up a card that's a 17. If you play the 17 on the 27, it drops you back. So now you can play the 18, 19, 20, and so on. And the same thing on the 100 side. Is it a multiple of a 10, or is it in like measurements of 10, right? So from 27 to 17, it's not a multiple of 10, it's a, but it's a decade, right? It's, it's a decade, yeah. yeah. Now, the other side of this is it actually has a co-op version, which is kind of like a Hanabi kind of way of playing, where everyone gets a hand of cards, but you can't tell each other what cards you have. But then you can use these really obscure kind of rules where you kind of hint what to play and what not to play, which personally I absolutely hate. And I, and I, I know that Hanabi is a good game. I just utterly hate the way that everyone plays the game because there's always a way kind of around the rules, 
but within the rules, but it's not playing the game. And then everyone's like, oh, yeah, I got 25 every time. I'm like, no, you're not playing the game right. So I don't like that version of it, but the solo version seems excellent. And we've talked way too much about a single deck game. But the other game is Machikara. We talked about this game a lot. It's a little bit like Catan. You have a number of cards that make up a marketplace. You will purchase cards put them as part of your tableau, and then as you roll the dice, or as other people roll the dice, but depending on what pip shows up there, so if you have a card that benefits off a five and you roll a five, you will be able to use that special ability. It's a very light game. It's a fun game. We've all enjoyed it. Not much more to say about that game. There's expansions to it. We've already talked about those expansions. And there's also finally Cult Express, which is a 3D train, which is kind of these little cardboard pieces. It's really cute, really interesting. It's got a lot of tokens, and you are trying to rob this train. And there's a sheriff that's kind of combating you, and all the other players are kind of working against you. This is another game that is kind of hit pretty big here in the U.S. People have liked it a lot, but it really hasn't gotten the wide distribution yet. So we'll probably see this now kind of reach out and spread out everywhere because of these nominations. Sounds like it's going to be a good time for these games. I think the game is the one that I had never heard of. I'd seen Colt Express around a lot recently, and Monkey Koro, of course, is very widely known. The game, though, I had—I don't even think I'd heard of once. Yeah, I don't think so either. I don't think it's really here in the U.S. as of yet. I mean, I think there's a few copies that are floating around, but it hasn't you know, hit distribution yet. Yeah, cool. Now, the Kinderspiel, this is the one for children's games— this is games that definitely haven't hit the U.S. yet. These are German games. There's uh, Push a Monster, there's Spinderella, and there's Shouts Rabbits. I guess. I Schatz, guess. Shouts Rabbits. I have okay. no idea. Let's go with that. Okay. That's <laughs> what we're doing. And then the final category, and the, probably the one the most important and most interesting to us, would be the Kennerspiel. Now, these are the kind of gamer games. There is Broom Service... Elysium, which we talked about, and Orleans. These are all pretty interesting games. Broom Service really hasn't had the wide U.S. distribution yet. We haven't gotten that game to the table yet. Elysium we talked about previously. This is a card selection game, and then you'll put the cards as part of your tableau, and then you'll get a special ability, and then you'll be able to take those cards that were giving you special abilities and then play them to do a set collection mechanic like Abyss. So use the card for the action, and then finally use the card for victory points, and you collect sets that score you points, and that's how you win the game. It kind of looks like Deus a little bit, but it plays like Abyss. And then Orleans is a bag-building game. So you actually have these cubes, and you're, you're putting them out on the board. It's a real classic Euro This was a recent Kickstarter that was highly successful. Once again, has not been out to the U.S. yet, so we have very light details. But we've seen enough playthrough videos to know that at least Elysium and Orleans are outstanding games. And I'm not sure which ones are going to win the awards here. It's a a bit of a challenge. Sometimes it it seems like one is a big frontrunner, and then another one just comes out and wins. Yeah, I mean, I haven't had a chance to play either of these games, but from what I've seen of them, Elysium looks more my speed. It's the one that I'd jump to play first if someone put them down on the table in front of me. But that doesn't mean anything except for the fact that it's got a really pretty box. <laughs> right? I mean, it, it could be a terrible game as soon as you open it up. It could be New Coke. Like, yeah. I mean, 
from last year, Camel Up won the Spiel des Jahres. And I think probably the game that's probably closest to that would be Cult Express as far as, ooh, this has really cool parts to it and bits. In Camel Up, you have this pyramid that shakes the dice up and you pull this little this little lever and the dice roll out. Yeah. So Cult Express has that kind of really cutesy kind of gimmick. But Machi Caro is really the kind of splendor of 2015. It's light, it's fun, it's simple, and it plays with a lot of people. Yeah, I, I could definitely see Machi Koro taking it, taking its category, just sure. because it's such a fun game. It's such a good game. But then the game, which is a horrible name for a game. I'm sorry, the game can't be named the game. <laughs> the game plays a lot like Hanabi, which was an, also another winner. So this category can go... You know, either of the three ways, if you look at the previous winners. The Kennerspiel, oh man. I would think that Orleans, at least from what I've seen, is the heavier of these three games. But because it's the heavier of three games, I don't think they're going to lean towards it. I think that uh, Elysium is going to pull this out because they, even though it's a heavier category, they tend to go lighter. Really? Okay. Because like, I looked at Elysium and Elysium looks more attractive and enjoyable to me. But I didn't think that the weight would count against Orleans, but who knows? I mean, there is too heavy even in a heavy heavyweight bracket, right? There's just, all right, now the weight of the game is actually getting in the way of its enjoyment, not just providing new mechanics. So, but, though I imagine no game you know, that flawed would make it into this list, so I'm sure it's a fine game. Yeah, these are all great games. It's None of these games is, you know, weak, but... You know, for the Spielers Yards, you had Camel Up last year and then Hanabi like we talked about. But, I don't know. They're they're all really nice games. And, you know, we're looking forward to the winners. Because, at least with this this group of people, they actually pick out some really decent games. Now, with all those great nominees that we've been talking about, let's talk about our Acquisition Disorders. And now, our Acquisition Disorders. Acquisition Disorders? That's crazy! Only needs the base game. Nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion. See? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game, the expansion, and the promos, and of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? So the base game, the expansion, the promos, and the upgraded components. See? That's not too much, but maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe you might need the... Now for our Acquisition Disorders this week, we are talking about two brand new Kickstarters that you definitely want to get in on. So, this is a Richard Lanius love fest. Now, you know us. You've listened to us. And we have retold our outstanding adventures with Defenders of the Realm. Now, maybe you haven't gotten a chance to pick it up yet. Or maybe you haven't got a chance to pick up some of the extras like the Dragon expansion, which has been out of print for quite some time. Well, now is the time because Defenders of the Realm has a Kickstarter for their Dragon expansion. Now, if you're like me, you've already picked up the Dragon expansion, plus literally everything else that kind of comes with this game. But the Dragon expansion is a second edition, so they're adding some new things to that. So if you already own it, you can pick up the Dragon Hunter version pledge level. For $25, you get the new placards, all new cards, new rules, the Winds of War expansion, and their stretch goals, which are pretty extensive. But if you don't own either that expansion, you can pick up the expansion, you can pick up the base set, and honestly, this Kickstarter campaign is crazy because they're offering everything that they've ever made that came out with Defenders of the Realm. So we're talking about 
all the hero expansions. We're talking about all the promos. We're talking about the recent Minions campaign. And then we're talking about all of their painted sets too. Because you can actually purchase the dragons, the heroes, the minions painted. Plus all of the other games that kind of are around the kind of area. So Dragon Rampage and Defenders of the Realms Battlefield. I kind of own those already too. But nonetheless, they're at really cheap prices. So if there was ever a time to back this campaign or ever a time to check this out, now is the time. Yeah, and I think some of the add-on options are limited numerically, so you might want to jump in early rather than late because they are not going to be making more of some of them, I think. Yeah, and I think what I really like about this campaign too is that there are some stretch goals just to give you free stuff, yeah. which I really like. So it's while there is a lot of add-ons, so you can kind of pick and choose what you want, but like, hey, you get an extra dragon. Like, awesome, dragons! And as we know from Smash Up, everyone loves dragons. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So my uh, acquisition disorder is not very different. I'm looking at the Defenders of the Last Stand adventure board game on Kickstarter, which is also a Lanius game. And as far as I can tell, is Defenders of the Realm, but with a Mad Max theme. Which seems honestly pretty cool to me. I like Defenders of the Realm, I like Mad Max, and I bet this is going to be a pretty popular game with the Mad Max 2 coming out or having come out. Yeah, it's, the new, it's the new Mad Max, like which is... Fury Road, right? That's yeah, it's part of the other movies, but it's not. Okay, anyway, Mad Max reboot means that a Mad Max-themed game is probably going to do well. Yeah. Uh, and I think it'll probably be popular at tables. The one worry I have is it might hit an awkward spot between Defenders of the Realm and uh, Dead of Winter on my Ah, shelf okay right and that it's got the defenders of the realm mechanics which i really enjoy sure and a dead of winter kind of theme yes and those games are different but they're close enough that that narrow space in between them i don't know if a 65 dollar game is the right thing to fill it with mm. now that isn't to say i'm not gonna buy it i'm just <laughs> you know maybe not the minis look awesome the cards look cool uh, maybe I'll take a look at some playthrough videos, see if it plays exactly like it looks like it plays, which is exactly like Defenders of the Realm. Uh, see what you know sets it apart. But it does look like a really cool campaign, and I am having to practice what little self-control I have to avoid impulse buying it. <laughs> well, either way, if you if you like the medieval fantasy theme, you have Defenders of the Realm, and if you like the Mad Max kind of last man standing then you got it. the defenders of the last stand right yeah uh and it looks like a i mean it, it's pretty cool to have that option i know some people get angry we were talking about this earlier some people get grumpy about reskins of old themes i think it's kind of nice actually to every flavor that you could possibly want it in right yeah there's some new twists in this version too so it's going to give you a little bit of a different feel not radically different you don't need to have both, but if you do love the game that much like we do, you may want to have both. Yeah. And we love Richard Larnia, so it's all good. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, he's to take so much of my money. So uh, those are our acquisition disorders this week. All right, so now on to Anthony and solo gaming. All right, guys, ready for some gaming? I brought my favorite games. Got a couple new ones. Hello. Is anybody here? Hello. Hey you guys, it's Anthony and I'm back with my solo gaming segment. 
this actually comes courtesy of my son and all of the major tweaks that come involved with uh, ensuring that he can enjoy the full-size board games that I like to play and have something to do while we're playing. The first game that kind of hit our table together, uh, my son and I, actually does have a solo variant, but uh, the key to this was it gave him something to do while I was actually playing the game. And it didn't matter to me that I was playing a game that was challenging, challenging to me or not. Uh, I'm happy to play any of the games he has, whether it's Busy Town or Animal Upon Animal or Robot Turtles, whatever it is. I enjoy all these things. I just, you know, like spending time with my son. But one thing I've noticed is that he enjoys spending time with me doing the things I like to do. So we have to find a way to kind of tweak those so that they're kid-friendly and he's not sitting there staring at a wall because that's not going to last very long either. So we pulled out Imperial Settlers, which I know has an, a fairly robust solo version. Um, I actually talked about it a few episodes back last year. And the game actually comes with solo variant cards because, and this is kind of the key, most games with a solo variant have to do one of two things. They either have to make it possible to score up, so basically any Rosenberg game um, or a worker placement game, you're, you're basically racing against your own score, or they have to have some kind of automated opponent. So you have to have a robot player of some sort. Um, Imperial Settlers does both. Um, you are facing off against uh, kind of an automated opponent, but with far less mechanics and movements than you'd find in, you know, like if you fully automated uh, another player in the game, which would make this not a lot of fun at all, um, which is why it comes with its own deck. And then on the flip side, you're racing to maximize your score. Because actually winning against the computer, quote-unquote, in uh, Imperial Settlers is fairly easy. I'd say we win 90% of the time, but actually getting a high enough score for it to be one of those top-level scores is a fair bit more complicated. Um, Complicated further by the fact I let my son pick the cards when we're drafting. To that end, it becomes a lot more of a guessing game. You can't just... um, you can't just automatically know what's going to work and what's not going to work as you would in a lot of solo games where you don't have a lot of choices, um, but you, it might still be challenging because of randomness or whatever else might be involved. Uh, Imperial Settlers is a bit of a puzzle, and you have to kind of find the most efficient way to build out your empire while not necessarily succumbing to the desire just to attack the AI player. What I let my son do in this, though, which makes it unique and different, is that he gets to basically ferry all the pieces around. And you constantly need new pieces. Um, And so I will tell him what I need. He will bring them over to me. And I will adjust accordingly and then play whatever my moves are. The game is super quick. Um, If there's not a four-year-old involved, it probably takes 20, 25 minutes to go through the whole thing. Um, With my son, maybe 40, 45. And a heck of a lot more fun. So totally worth it. Um, The key, though, and the reason why this is so complicated... Uh, for games that don't already have a solo variant involved, is that you have to find a way to automate at least half the game. And that's why it's very interesting to see things like um, uh, what was done with the solo variant for uh, Viticulture in the Tuscany uh, Kickstarter, which offered all those extra expansions for that game. Um, what what happened was is that this new system, the Automa system, was implemented as kind of a solo variant. But the cool thing about the Automa system is that it's also a solo variant for many other games. It can be adjusted and tweaked in a lot of other ways. Um, 
If you go to the forums on BoardGameGeek, you'll find dozens of conversations about how to make a normal game, a very straightforward, competitive multiplayer game. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. Why would you do that? Uh, Why not just go buy one of the many solo games that are out there? Uh, A lot of reasons. I mean, I own 60, 70 games myself, and maybe seven of them have solo variants to some degree. There's a lot of games in there I'd love to play, and I just don't always have a chance to play with other people. Um, Another way that you can turn a non-solo game into a solo game is just playing through it to learn the rules. Um, I've done this many times to learn how to play certain games. I played famously, my my wife found this quite amusing, uh, War of the Ring by myself, and I was intent on playing through the entire thing. So I played a nice maybe hour and a half long solo version of War of the Ring to learn the rules. And to be honest, it really took that long to learn the rules. So um, I'm happy I did it, but it was, you know, I felt a little silly at times. Obviously, any game where there's hidden information, uh, where there's two decks of cards or two hands of cards, and, you know, knowing what the opponent has would give you an advantage, it makes it kind of hard to play that solo. But other games less so. Um, It really depends on, you know, what you want to get out of it, how you want to play and what the most efficient way to do so is. So, the bottom line, is there a good way to turn a non-solo game into a solo game? Depends on how flexible you are, and what you're willing to give up. At the same time, there's a lot of really cool systems coming out that make it possible to turn those games into solo games, and increasingly, designers are taking the time to do it for you. Um, That's why we have games like Imperial Settlers that are fantastic solo plays, because the designer decided to spend a little extra time and build out a solo deck and make that a possibility. Um, Other recent games have gotten in Kickstarter. Fidelitas has a nice solo variant. Um, In fact, one of the biggest games of 2013, Caverna, has a solo variant at the very end there. And so it makes it possible to enjoy these games on your own. It's not a perfect version. It's never going to be unless it's designed as a solo game, but it gives you a chance to enjoy it and play and have fun, even though you're not actually um, playing the full version of the game. And as long as you're okay with that and can make those uh, adjustments, it's going to be an enjoyable experience for you. So that's everything for this week. If you haven't yet, try out Imperial Settlers. It is a great solo game. The expansion adds a little bit more to that. Um, a lot of other games out there, too, that have kind of these adjusted solo rules. Uh, Lewis and Clark is a great one from last year. Um, definitely recommend picking that one up as a solo play. And there's a bunch more that are coming down the line with solo versions or solo variants that you can find on Board Game Geek. The key is to find a game that you enjoy and don't mind tweaking to continue playing even though you enjoy it the way it is. And now, BGA's feature review. Our feature review this week is How To Teaching a Game. Now, teaching a game is a very big part of our board gaming hobby. Now, while it seems for us that board games are everywhere, mostly that's because we basically you know, place our board games in any free space that we have left. (laughs) But board gaming is still a bit of a niche hobby. And in order to kind of expand our hobby and bring new players to the table, it's very important that we learn how to teach games to new players or just teach games to each other. You know, the more new games that we can learn, the more fun, the more expansive this hobby is for everybody. 
Yeah, it doesn't really help you have a large game collection if you've got no one to play with. Take it from me. Most of the <laughs> week I have, you know, a pretty large shelf full of games that don't do anything ever. I have so many games still in wrap, guys. <laughs> it's a real problem. So the way to solve that problem is Daniel needs to rip open one of those games and teach it to somebody, man. I'm just going to start abducting people, just pulling people <laughs> off the screen, be like, you're going to play a game with me now. Maybe, I think Saul might have ruined that opening, actually. Do you I want, think so. Do you want to play a game? Do you want to play a game? No! <laughs> I mean, literally, a game. It, it's kind of like Dominion. Do you know Dominion? No? Okay, well, we, well, you'll learn. Don't worry about it. So that being said, other than abducting people to play games, it's really important and it's very much a big part of a hobby because we are ambassadors for the hobby. Each and every one of us, and if you're listening to this podcast, you are a hardcore gamer, man, and we really like to have you here. And we really want to teach you how best to teach a game because it is a very complicated and in-depth process it's not just like you just throw the game at the table and go all right so we're playing right so with that said we want to go through a couple of the different steps that you should consider when teaching a game so first off the most important step is the selection of a game now we all have a number of great games and some games that we really do love but the first thing you really need to think about is who's going to be sitting down at the table with you and what games do they like yeah, I mean, you've got to tend not just to theme. That's going to be important, right? If someone hates zombies, don't go pull out Dead of Winter, no matter how good of a game it is. <laughs> sure. Right? And you've got to pay attention to certain factors of the game that may be more difficult for some people than others, right? If you've got a colorblind player, you need to be attentive to that. If you've got an English as a second language speaker, you better be attentive to that because I have uh, a friend who, who's from China and will sit down and play games sometimes, and I ended up in the awkward position of every turn, she just hand me a card. What does this say? <laughs> what does this say because they were cards sure. with tiny prints that were just full-on like paragraphs of text and you know she could keep up for a while but after a while it's just exhausting to read that much even if it's your native language yes um so you've got to be paying attention to that sort of thing i mean it's helpful too if your game collection is nearby that they can actually look at the games and see if there's something that catches their eye but as you said being knowledgeable about the game is it language dependent is it, you know, is this a lot of dice rolling? Is it a dexterity game that the person may not be able to handle or play well with? Maybe they're not, you know, as able to do certain things. So knowing the people that you're playing with and picking the most appropriate game is very important. Now, one of the ways that we can help you with that is each and every week we put out a podcast and we talk about games and we talk about, you know, who would really benefit by playing this game and, you know, Typically, and most importantly sometimes too, what's the real time that this game does take to play? Yeah, and I mean, even if we're not going to be speaking directly to your experience, at least it can be a prompt for you to consider whether these games would be appropriate with certain kinds of people. And I think that's a really valuable tool. Sure. Now, remember, and you know this, when you're teaching a game, be sure to add an extra time for that teaching. So if the game says an hour... Figure an hour and a half to maybe two hours, depending on how many people are new at the table. Because, you know, it does take some extra time to teach a game. And, and if you only have an hour to play a game, don't pull out a game that plays in 45 minutes. Because you're not going to get through the game. And it is very important that you actually get through the whole game. 
you know, the experience of the game, especially with Euro games, comes down to the final moves. Or maybe when in a Americlash game, the final battle. So if you only get through three quarters of a game, yeah, maybe they see how the game plays, but they haven't had that final resolution that's so much a part of board gaming. Yeah, and as you were bringing up with the Americlash Euro distinction, I mean, you were you were using it, not so much bringing it up, but that's going to be another important one there is the sort of atmosphere the game brings. I usually open new players with co-op games sure. because that's the one game where and I put this on the table and I say I've played this game a hundred times, that's not a threat. <laughs> sure. Right? That's a reassuring promise that we're going to make it, man. <laughs> right? I've never lost a soldier once and I'm not going to lose one now. That's right? great. Uh but when you throw it out in a competitive game and say, I've played this game a hundred times, that reads as, and I'm going to whoop you. Yes. But I've had, I do have some friends who just don't like cooperative games at all. So I have to throw down a competitive game against them, even though they're new, right? they're not really experienced gamers. They just don't find the idea of everybody winning together to be entertaining. Sure. Also, when you're selecting a game, if you are playing with gamers who are hardcore gamers and they play games a lot... You know, sometimes what's really good when you pick out a game is to pick out a game that is something that they know, but maybe has one additional mechanic to it. So, oh, great, you know Dominion. Oh, this is going to be awesome. We're going to play Seven Wonders, which has card drafting, so you'll be able to pick cards. But it also has tableau building, which may be new to you. So there's something added that, you know, you could pick up, a new, a new way, a new mechanic. And this is where all those discussions we have about gateway games and the next step games. Yes. Are, or if you like X, try Y. Right. That's where these become relevant because we're going to be helping you figure out, all right, well, you played Pandemic, you liked Pandemic, so here, let's try Flashpoint. Yes. Or here, let's try Defenders of the Realm if they really did well at Pandemic. Right? Sure. You wouldn't jump right to that. But you know, if they know what they're doing and if they're a gamer, yeah. Absolutely. So now let's talk about some prep. You got the game. You think that this game may be great for your audience. You pulled off the wrapping. You're really looking forward to it. Or maybe it's a game you played a hundred times. You still want to do prep for the game. Because remember, just because you know the game very well doesn't mean that you can teach the game well. So when you're looking back at this old game that you've had for quite some time or a brand new game that you're kind of familiar with, you want to think about... Can I teach the game? Can I communicate that game really well? Because this prep point is really important. Yeah, absolutely. I think the emphasis needs to be on the re-read the rules. There's a tendency a lot of times to be like, oh, I've read the rules. I've played this game 20 times. Sure. It's going to be great. But remember that you played that game most every time with a bunch of other people who also know how the game works. And they're not going to ask you really weird questions about whether certain moves are possible because maybe it would be a tactical mistake or it's a really bizarre thing to do or just something that never came up. But a new player will find a way to ask you the weirdest questions from the book and you will spend the entire game session in the FAQ and errata section if you don't prep. Sure. You may well listen back to some of our older episodes where we actually run through certain games. And we when we do a run-through, we do a run-through to explain the game to a player who's never played the game before. And I think that's really important because as someone who's played the game often, you may gloss over whole sections without even thinking about it because, oh, this makes sense. You know what this does. And they're like, no, I, I don't know what that does. Oh, okay. Well, that'd be a problem. So thinking about teaching the game from their perspective is really important. So you want to listen to our podcast. You want to watch videos. You want to watch walkthroughs. 
So you can get a general idea. Blogs are really good for this when they give you kind of information. FAQs are really good for this. Go to Board Game Geek and read the rules section. Just kind of flip through that really quickly because sometimes it might point out there's certain rules that are clunky that you may want to point out in the beginning. Like, yeah, this place like this, you should know. it does. It's not really clear on the cards, but a lot of people were having problems with these certain rules or these certain cards. So keep an eye out for those. Yeah, definitely one of the first things I do is look for errata. I look for rules that have been changed or people discussing rules in a very clear way because that's going to let you know not just that specific ruling, but it's going to give you sort of forewarning what kinds of questions new players will have that will really stump them. And might send you back to the book a couple times if you're not ready to answer them. Sure. So you've taken our recommendations. You've selected the game from your collection or you purchased a brand new game. And you did the prep with people in mind that haven't played the game before. Now it's time to introduce the game. Now, as we were saying before, Euro games might have a little bit of a thin theme. Not always, but might have a thin theme. Whereas Clash games probably have a full rich theme while these games do come down to sometimes pushing cubes and pushing men across the board you really want to stop here and it may feel a little bit silly but you may want to give a little bit of the theme give a little bit of the story a little bit about the history a little bit about the setting now this is not just because you want to give some color and flavor which is very important but sometimes by giving that theme like if you were talking about Agricola for example and saying well you know you have your family here and you're trying to score victory points of course but you know it's really important that while you're growing this family that everyone's fed and taken care of oh okay so that's part of the theme I got to make sure that when I'm playing the game I'm feeding my family so any game that has a very good theme is not just kind of coloring the world but it's informing you too yeah I think of it kind of like you notice how whenever someone describes every single ingredient in a piece of food, that food suddenly <laughs> sounds really good? Even if it would have been the exact same food, you wouldn't really have cared about it so much until they started talking about the artisanal cheese loaf that they put into it or whatever, right? <laughs> I think of it kind of like that. When you're providing this sort of exposition for the media about to be consumed, it sort of increases your enjoyment of it, and it also gives you something really convenient to do while you're setting up the game so that people aren't just really bored. Especially if this is a game that you've played a lot or you love the game or if it's a brand new game, bring some enthusiasm, man. Let's let's pump this game up. I can't wait to get this game to the table. You guys are going to love this game. This game's going to be awesome. Oh, these characters are really great. This is a new implementation of an old mechanic. I'm getting pumped for this. And the more pumped you are, everybody at the table is going to get excited. And that's really nice. Yeah, absolutely. If you're kind of dull-eyed and bored, they're going to be dull-eyed and bored too because clearly you don't really care about it that much. There is a limit to this though, so I wouldn't set down Turkey My Mayo and be like, in the world of Turkey turkey Delis, the Sandwich Kings rival against one... And he goes, all right, chill. If your intro takes like more than 10% of the game time, there's a problem. But for Mice and Mystics, right... That's a game that thrives on this. You play that little intro clip, everybody's in. Okay. So cosplay's out when you're, in, when you're teaching a game? Uh, as, as, at least if it's Turkey My Mayo. <laughs> that, yeah. Okay. I gotta, I gotta return that turkey costume then. Okay. <laughs> well, now, let's talk about the first mechanical types of parts when it comes to teaching a game. Start with the end. I know this may not make sense, and you, you want to get to like what the first move is, 
but let people know what the victory conditions are for this game. You know, for example, when you play Rune Wars, you look at this massive game of you know, where all these different terrains and you have all these troops and soldiers and demons and monsters and heroes and you're like, ah, I know this game, it's Risk. And when you play the game, you play it like Risk and then you don't realize it's not like Risk at all, it's about collecting the runes. So the first and most important thing is to let people know is this if this is a victory point game, if this is an area control game. And what is the win condition? What point total am I looking for? And not just win conditions. So in games with player elimination, you're going to want to talk loss conditions too, right? This will make you out of the game even if everyone else is still going on, right? You're gone, right? Player elimination games. I don't like player elimination games largely for that reason. But you do want to cover anything that can end the game in either way. Absolutely. So for example, if you're playing King of Tokyo, you can win by knocking everybody out or you can win by getting 20 stars. So you want to let everyone know what the conditions are so they know what to shoot for. And so that they know what decisions to make that will get them there, too. Yeah, it gives them uh, the goal to keep in mind. And I think it's good to start with this particularly in your mechanics section. Because by giving them this goal, as you then describe how the game plays and how it works and what kinds of things you can do later, which a step we'll get to in a minute... Uh, then they're going to have this idea in the back of their head and they're already going to be trying to make strategies, right? They're already going to be thinking forward about how these apparently arbitrary decisions they make can influence their victory one way or another. Now, we also talked about this a lot when we talk about if you like, for example, Pandemic or if you like Ticket to Ride. And we've talked about this. We've had a lot of episodes where when we break down a game and we break down the different elements, we often talk about mechanics, So if somebody is a gamer, they'll probably understand deck building, card drafting, tableau building, area control. So when you put this game on the table before you get into the, you know, the nitty gritty of like you move here and you move there, you probably want to say this is a deck building game that has area control and it has elements of tableau building. So you want to give them an idea of those types of things. Yeah, and this and this bridges nicely into the question of right what kinds of actions and choices and vulnerabilities are the players going to have, right? You say it's a deck building game. I already know that at least one of the major actions I can do is build my deck, right? And presumably, one of the vulnerabilities I'm going to have is people can mess with my deck. I think a good way to think of the information you need to communicate to players really quickly about the kinds of decisions they can make, and going over mechanics, mechanical similarities is a good way to do this, But you focus on powers and liabilities. What can you do and what can be done to you, right? So maybe you can accumulate coins and gather wealth. It's going to be really important for the player to know, one, how they can do that. Uh, And two, can somebody take my coins? Can they take them themselves or do they just destroy them? Can they destroy my money-making implements? So players are going to need to know what they can do and what can happen to them. Sure. Like I think Imperial Settlers is a good example for that too. Because there's some buildings that are your civilization that can't be destroyed, but their normal common buildings can be destroyed. And if you don't know about that going into the game, you're going to get a rude awakening at some point. Right, and that's one of the things that gives those more powerful buildings some of their power, right, is they're permanently stick. Yes. Uh, And I've seen some pretty unfortunate moments, right, where someone just goes, wait, I thought that these were the same things, and why is this one so much more expensive? You're like, oh, because that one happens every turn. Sure. That one only happens once. And then they're looking at their, you know, tableau and going, oh, so this is useless. Yes. Uh, They thought they had found some great strategy or really good luck, right? Now, this is where 
you knowing the game and you reviewing the game prior to teaching the game comes really in <clears throat> comes up because you don't want to give so much rules explanation and so many mechanics and what you can do and, and you don't want to explain so much that you've overburdened and burned the people out before they get started. So if you can, and if the game allows, now sometimes the game does not allow this, but if you can, if the game has different sections to it or different phases to it, you probably would be best off just telling them what they need to know at certain points in the game. Especially since this is a teaching game, and as we all know, we're teaching the game. That's the win condition for us as the teacher. So let them know like, hey, these are the available actions at this point. These are the things you can do. And then there'll be other actions, and you just want to keep an eye on a couple of things here and there. But I'll get into those other things because they happen later, and they're not connected to what happens now. Yeah, as far as gaming is concerned, I'm a big fan of the learn-by-doing strategy. Too much discussion of all the possibilities, and I'm going to phase out. So when we talk about you know assessing the powers and liabilities of these uh, of, of the players... Don't go down every single card in the deck. Most of us can read, and if we can't, we shouldn't be playing a text-driven card game anyway. Right. Uh, so just cover the basics, the general ideas. Things like you can gain health back, you can lose health. You don't have to tell me every single kind of attack that can cost me health. You just need to let me know, can I lose health? All right. Is that like a thing I need to worry about? Or is it okay if I get down to one health? Because nobody else can hurt, hurt me, only my own actions can, right? So that's going to be a very important distinction, right? Don't overteach. Sure. And I think Drew's really good about this, particularly because what he likes to do when he's teaching new gamers is talk out loud his process. So he's like, all right, I think I'm going to do this, and I think I'm going to do that, and I'll do this because this will do this for me. Because some games, since there's a lot of open information in the game, if it's pretty obvious to other players who've played the game while you're doing X, Y, and Z, maybe explain it out loud. Like, oh, I'm going to take this resource because it'll turn into this resource later on. Anyone who's played the game knows what you're doing there, so might as well let other players in on that information. Yeah, and it sets up a really interesting dynamic at the table, too, because even the more experienced players can start sharing strategies. Yeah. And it becomes, I think, actually more friendly, in a sense, when you start doing that. Uh, so I really like when Drew does that. Absolutely. Now, finally, once you've kind of played through the game, and hopefully you're not out to crush the other players, maybe you're taking some non-optimal strategies to victory, you're still trying to win, you don't want the other player to feel like they're the most brilliant person in the world because you blindfolded yourself and walked into a wall three times, you should still try to win the game, but maybe you want to give them some options and maybe not attack them so much, at least not in the first game. You want to start talking about what you enjoyed about the game. You want to debrief the player. Yeah, I think this is going to be a really valuable thing, and it's something people don't typically do. Assuming that you've brought somebody to the table, this is probably somebody you want to bring to the table again. Debriefing them will let you know what to put out for them, right? Did they enjoy this game, or did they hate it? And if they hated it, you know, don't put it out again, right? Uh, it'll help you get an idea for what kinds of things they like, what they don't like, what's confusing in the way you teach, and what's not confusing, that sort of thing. Now, in particular... You want to be able to go over everything because there might be certain elements of the game that they're not really catching or they didn't really like. But maybe it's just because they didn't understand that. I know we played with a player who was playing Lords of Waterdeep for the first time and was collecting the mission cards 
and believed, unfortunately, probably because it wasn't taught well or they missed a certain section when we were going over the rules, that they must complete those missions or otherwise lose victory points, kind of like Ticket to Ride. Oh, wow. So at the end of the game, they were very upset because they were like, but don't, you know, don't I lose points for these things? I've been trying to complete all of these things. Like, oh, no, not at all. It doesn't really matter at all. And they were like, they were really upset about that. So being able to address a lot of those issues that they may not have picked up at some point for some reason is really important and keeps them a friendly gamer and hopefully gives gives them a chance to come back and play the game again. Yeah. Uh, so I think this might actually be a good... I mean, that's, that's our whole arc. Uh, and this is going to touch well on sort of the second half of this feature, which is frequent problems that come when teaching goes awry. And this might not be anybody's fault. Teaching games is complicated. Games are complicated. And, you know, maybe somebody just misunderstood something somebody said. Uh, so for me... The frequent problem that is probably the meanest, the worst, and the most upsetting uh, is probably going to be the accidental cheating one, right? A new player sat down at the table. They thought that they could use this card every turn. And since we're so used to playing with players who know what they're doing, we weren't looking over their shoulder, right? If nothing else, that would be exhausting. Uh, so they've been accruing a massive amount of points. And going, wow, they're doing really well for their first time playing. And they're like, man, this game is so easy. Why isn't anyone else doing what I'm doing? Maybe I just got all the good cards. Sure. Right? Uh, and they just think this is a walk in the park. And then you look over and you go, you can't use that ability this often. Right? Or that card goes away. All of those cards go yes. away. You can't use those abilities every turn. And the game stops. Yes. Because you've got to figure out now... What do you do at what this do you point? Do? Yeah, I think this happens a lot in Seven Wonders where people often don't talk about how you can't build duplicate buildings. At some point towards the end of the game, you'll look at someone's tableau and you're like, you've built three of those six-point blue buildings. You shouldn't have been able to do that. So sometimes there are things that are not heard right or overlooked and it leads to some problems playing the game. Yeah, I mean, it's your, your turns down the game now. Yeah. Right? So... You're midway through the game, right? That's the nightmare situation. You're midway through. You have got the options of start over and play it right. But hey, you're midway through. And if this is a long game, that's an hour down the drain at least. And nobody was going to want to restart, right? They're going to be frustrated. Sure. Or you keep going and you correct the problem. But then that new player has gained this substantial lead over the more seasoned players. Because they were cheating. They didn't mean to, but they were. Or you try to come up with some quasi-fair penalty for the new player, but it's not clear what that would be in most cases, right? You're just sort of ballparking, like, let's take, I don't know, 30 points away? I mean, the game basically has an asterisk. I mean, that's really all you can do at that point if, if you're midway towards the end of the game and someone's been playing something wrong. Since it wasn't intentional, it's not really cheating because they weren't trying to purposely get an unfair advantage but at the same time since the other players wanted to play and enjoy this game it throws the game off a little bit i i would say if you can roll it back a little bit do that if you can't then just play it on but i think it's very important that you finish the game yeah i agree i'm, I'm on the camp of it takes more effort to try and force a fix sure than it's worth Right. You're going to obsess about this problem. You're going to spend an hour debating what's fair. Everyone's going to be upset. The new player's going to feel like an ass and never going to want to come back. Right, And people are going to start getting angry. Uh, or you can just let it go. Yes. 
And remember, it's a game. Yes. We're here to have fun. This is a new player. It's not surprising that they made a mistake. Sure. Let it go. And I think, too, when you're playing a game, especially with people playing for the first time, even if they're a hardcore gamer, you know, sometimes you're thinking about a strategy and you make a move and then someone else makes their move and you're like, wait a minute, you can't really do that or that's not really going to do anything for me. If you can, let them, you know, give them a mulligan. Let them be able to do that little turn around or that place that worker in a different spot. If it's not affecting other people, catch it early. Let them do that little spot over as long as it hasn't hurt everybody else's gameplay. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing like turning an a-, a moment of accidental cheating into a teachable moment. We're like, oh, 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 I see what you're thinking. I see why you're trying to do that. But unfortunately, you can't do that. Remember that these powers only happen once a turn. Sure. Uh, so you can't use the same one over and over again. So maybe you want to redo your turn. Just don't play up the fact that this has given them an unfair advantage thus far. They already feel bad enough. And it's really just not worth the anger and frustration of trying to adjudicate some arbitrary fair rule here. And if you're with the kind of people who are going to get upset about a new player making a mistake, and a minor rules mistake that gave them a slight fair advantage, maybe reevaluate your game group. No, uh, that's a little harsh. But, you know, people do get invested in these things. Sure. But it is important to be able to step back and say, it's just a game. I'm here to have fun. I'm not here to win, right? I'm yes. here to have fun. New players can make mistakes. It's okay. Uh, another sort of the flip side of accidental cheating, right, is another major frequent problem, uh, which is the, I, I, I call it the, I thought that X plus Y equaled win. Right. This is when the new player misunderstood the rules in a way that didn't give them an advantage, but they thought they had one. That is, they heard the win conditions, and they heard an A instead of a the, or a plural instead of a singular, or something weird like that. And they have spent the entire game building this ingenious engine to do something that is in no way rewarded by the game rules. Right. They have spent... A massive amount of effort, every turn they have played has been for this express purpose of gathering these random resources together. And it looked to you probably like they were just having new player problems, right? They didn't really get the game. But here they were, totally invested and their coup de grace, and then they found out that they were playing the wrong game. Yes. Uh, And that's going to be a really frustrating moment for them particularly. Sure. I had a player who was playing Bruges for the first time. And they were just collecting those little workers like they were they were building a little army up. And we were just like, I'm not really sure why you're doing that. And they're like, no, no, it's going to work out. I'm like, eh, I'm not really sure why you're doing that. And then at the end of the game, it, they didn't realize something. But they thought they had this genius strategy that was going to win them the game. And it actually didn't. It actually lost them the game pretty pretty big. Yeah, and we had a variant of this when we played Lewis and Clark, if I remember correctly. And we, I had built up this engine, and it was going really well. And then we looked at the rule book and we went, oh, wait, we taught that rule wrong. The rule is different. And we had to figure out right there, do we change the rule? And I'll admit, I, that was one of my pissier moments at the game table. <laughs> because I was, was tearing on down. I was like, I've got this in the bag. I've, you know, I learned the rules. I built the right system. And then... I hadn't touched the rule book yet. I hadn't looked at it yet. And then someone's like, oh, actually, this isn't how the game is played. And suddenly my engine started ripping itself to pieces and <laughs> flung me back to the beginning. Sure. And it was probably the right thing to do was to set the normal rules in motion from sure. that point forward. But it is very frustrating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, unlike the accidental cheating case where I would want to look at the more experienced players and say, guys, come on. 
Yes. You're going to play this game a hundred times more. It's not a big deal. You just relax. And the mistaken newbie situation, it's a little bit more heartbreaking for me because you've watched this person get this light in their eyes. They put two and two together. They're going, they're going. And they found out at the end that two and two doesn't equal five. Uh, <laughs> and just crushes them a little bit. Sure. Uh, but I do think the right call there is to instill normal rules. You don't want to teach it wrong. You don't want to reinforce wrong teaching, yes. especially. Um, but you do have to be sensitive there. You should be like, oh, oh, that's terrible. I'm <laughs> I'm so, so sorry. Um, you know, and, and it's something that they should probably get used to because rules mistakes are pretty common things that I think we deal with. No matter how closely you read the rule book. Somebody at the table is probably going to make a mistake or come close to making a mistake if you play enough games. So another big frequent teaching problem, man, I might just be, maybe I'm a better teacher in the classroom than I am at the, the table. <laughs> and you're talking to two qualified, yeah. highly rated on Rate My Professor <laughs> teachers. Both with college teaching experience and still. Yes. Uh, another problem I've seen is the, I call it the why bother problem. Sure. Uh, new player hits the table, they're going and... You know, they're getting in their car, they've turned the key, they're shifting into first gear, and they look up and everybody else is halfway down the track. And they just go, oh, well, uh oh, hmm. And this can be sometimes a symptom of the I thought X plus Y equal win problem. Like they thought that they had it in the bag, and now they find out they didn't, and their whole strategy was ruined. So really what they're going to do now is phone it in. They're going to take sort of scripted actions, whatever takes the least thought. They're not going to try to win. They're not invested. They don't want to be there anymore. And they'd like to step away from the game if they could. Sure. Uh, I think we had the most prominent version I've ever seen was playing Relic Runners, where one of the players at the table uh, had failed to get an engine running while I had gotten an engine running. Uh, and I ended up scoring more points in one turn than they had the entire game. And it was set up to continue doing this every turn. That is obviously an incredibly frustrating place to be, especially because it was clear they were there because of some sort of rules misunderstanding. Right? They're a smart person, a good player. Uh, as a rule, they usually run in the top couple players in any game. And it's kind of tough to deal with, but it's this moment where the player just sort of checks out, right? Sure. And, I'm, and that's when I do have some trouble figuring out what to do there. Because I kind of want to release them, right? I want to be like, okay, let's just scrap it. Sure. Uh, but on the other hand, there are five other players maybe. Sure. Or four other players. Or three other Like, if it was just me and them, I would be like, all right, we're going to close it up. We're going to play something different. Mm -hmm. But if there's three or four of you and you're in two hours into a three-hour game. Yes, when you sit down to play a game, you're you're basically signing... A social contract that I'm going to play throughout this game. I'm going to play my best. And if it somehow turns out that I got some things wrong or I'm not winning or I'm getting blown away, I'm going to do the right thing and just play the game out. Because sometimes maybe you can pull the game out. And if you can't pull the game out, you want to let make sure everyone else is having fun. Yeah, and you do kind of bring the table down a little bit. Now, this is another one that's tricky for me because it's the new player that's having a rough time. Again, an experienced player. Sure. And I'm assuming here we're talking new-new, like newly christened into the club of board gaming. If you've got a more experienced player and they're throwing a hissy, pat them on the head and, you know. <laughs> it happens. It, it does happen, especially if you're, you know, you've been playing for six hours. Sure. Or it's, you know, 11 o'clock at night or, you know, for you younger folks, it's one in the morning or two in the morning. <laughs> right? uh, you're going to get grumpy. That just happens and, you know, whatever. Uh, but I'm especially thinking here of like the new player 
and I'm always worried that this could be the moment that crushes the spark you were building, right? Where they're going to stop seeing playing this game as a game, and it's going to turn into homework. Sure. Right? They're just sitting there going, oh my god, I'd rather be doing my taxes, because at least when I got done putting those random formulas together, something important would have been completed. As opposed to me moving a colorful piece of plastic a few spots before I lose. I have found that the most successful strategy for me here is the, like, jangly keys in the face (laughs) of a baby strategy. Distract them. Sure. Pull them off the game. Start talking, making jokes. Maybe crack a few at your own expense if you can, especially at your own playing expense. Or tell, you know, funny gaming stories when you made really bad mistakes or you got dug into these holes. Try to break them out of that rumination cycle they're having where they're just obsessing over, you know, I came to play this game and I did everything they said and they said that I didn't and now it sucks, right? And what's happening is they're getting themselves stuck there. You just got to break them out of it long enough and most people, I find, reset to a pleasant mood. Yes. And sometimes for an experienced gamer who is learning a game for the first time it's a little bit slow and frustrating when you're learning a game you're like i've played a lot of games this person is really having a problem trying to teach me something so you want to be kind and allow them to at least give you some elements of the game and then when there is a break you want to come in with some questions so when it comes to teaching a game Yes, it's about the person teaching the game, but it's also about the people learning the game that they ask the right questions when there's an inappropriate time. And and ask for clarification, too. Those things are really important. Yeah, I mean, we could actually probably do a whole list on how to learn a game well and not even learning it alone, right? Learning with other players, right? One of the things I always do when I'm learning a game, the first time I play it, and I do this in most games, honestly, but the first time I learn a game, I was like, this doesn't count. I don't care. Right? I'm probably not going to win. That is cool. I'm not going to really... like. I'll try to win in the sense of I will do my best. Mm-hmm. But really what I'm trying to do is doing my best and following the rules and learning how they go. I'm not trying to cut throats and leave bodies in my wake like I might be if I was playing a game at which I'm more experienced, right? Yeah, if you go into a game and you have crushed the other person and they walk away and they're like, yeah, I'm not coming back, you've lost, yeah. You can you know, and that's really, you want to gain a player here. You want to get someone who's going to enjoy the game, come back to the game, maybe even pick up the game themselves, but you're not there to utterly and totally destroy the player. You're there to teach. That's your victory condition. If you've done a good job teaching, they come away liking the game and liking the experience, you've done well. Yeah, and this connects us to our, our last frequent problem, which is the wrong person teaching, and as Chris brought up, also sometimes the wrong person learning. And really what I'm actually thinking here is the wrong person teaching for the person learning, right? So for me, if you're going to be one of these read it out of the text, the the rule book kind of guys, just don't bother trying to teach me. Hand me the rule book. (laughs) Give me a few short pointers and then hand me the rule book. Chris can attest this. Pretty much every game we play, I've got the rule book in my hands for half the game. Sure. And I read it back and forth and upside down sometimes, uh, you know, just for fun. or sometimes, so my, I've got a very good friend who's from China, and her English is great, but there are words she doesn't have an easy time with. I know what words those are, because we spend a lot of time together. Uh, and sometimes people who are being really well-intentioned and are good teachers in general come out and start throwing this information at them. Like, All right, you need to slow down. Let me take it from here, because I know where to start. I know what kinds of information I can assume about her. I know what sort of experiences she's had. 
you don't as well. And that's not because you're not paying attention. It's just because I know her better. Uh, and so it's often useful to have, you know, the buddy teach, you know, bring, you teach who you bring, right? Your friends. Yes. So just to wrap it up, it is a very important thing to learn how to teach people games, to learn and study and research and prepare in order to be a great teacher because you, each and every one of us, is an ambassador to the hobby and our ultimate goal is to bring new players to the table, to expand the hobby above and beyond, and hopefully you've taught the game well enough that they, the new player, can teach that game to other players as well. And you get that little cascade effect. And eventually, gamers shall rule the world. Well, that's what we're doing the whole time, right? Pretty much. World domination? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. That's what it's going for. All right. Cool. So that's our how-to on teaching a game. So that's everything for this week. So please keep in contact with us on Twitter, Facebook, Board Game Geek, our website, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our Patreon account. We really appreciate your support. And until next time, this is Chris. And this is Daniel. We'll save you a seat at the table so we can teach you a brand new game. Unless you're Richard Lanius, then you'll be teaching us a brand new game. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.